I'm Tony Epstein, and this is The Magical Mystery Tour, a show that dives into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. My guest is Rick Halterman. He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul. I really want to tell you that conversation you had about depression, that was fantastic. Wasn't she wonderful? Both of you were just working it so beautifully, and the thing that was happening, at least for me when I was listening, was that she comes from basically a traditional Western approach, and yet... She had a very non-traditional, very pragmatic way of dealing with the whole thing, i.e., you know, there was a very soul-centered kind of approach, and I was just in awe of her, particularly as a young person. Exactly. And you're right. The two of us, we were like the right two people to be having that conversation together. Oh, it was just fantastic. In fact, Tonio, I copied the link and sent it on to my younger brother, who's been struggling, as you know, for how many months with this. I said, you know, there's a lot of great stuff in here. Please check it out. Yeah, the book is really amazing. I mean, she does such a wonderful job of comprehensively covering the whole issue from so many different angles, so that I think it would give someone suffering from depression real hope that they can come to terms with it and work with it from the inside out. Yep, in fact, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I was like, you know, I really should just get this for my younger brother. Yeah, it was a terrific book. Um, I'm pretty much past my days of depression. I was a, yeah, I suffered a lot. So well, I understand. Well, actually, we can get into that. But, you know, your volume is really quite low as far as hearing you on the phone. Is there anything that can change with that? Oh, yeah. All you have to do is ask. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's, that's what I was doing. <laughs> ask and ye shall receive. That's great. So that is better. So, yeah, that's interesting. So I guess, you know, if you wanted to hop into a conversation right there at this very place that you mentioned, in retrospect, when you look back, were some of the things that you discussed with that doctor were, were things that you you came upon by yourself in the course of working your way out of those depressions? Um, be more specific. <laughs> well, for instance, like she talks about, 
you know, just those pragmatic things of getting more sleep, you know, having a healthy diet, moving your body, exercising, all those sorts of things. Were those things that you came upon naturally in the course of your depression? Well, you know, I didn't keep track of things, but I have always been a a very active person. I loved playing sports. I, I love being outdoors. I love being active. And that always helped. But I think what, what happens when I get depressed, and I think this is true for many people, that when you get depressed, you don't want to do anything. You just don't feel inspired to do anything. So it becomes like a vicious cycle of getting stuck inside and not doing what feels good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that makes perfect sense because I, I think there's probably a certain amount of almost discipline that says I'm going to force myself to go out and take a walk, even, even if you are feeling very depressed. Right. But that's, that's where I think the difference lies, is that people who are really severely depressed, discipline is like anything else. It just goes out the window. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, so, not, it's not because of any kind of anti-discipline thing. It's just that there's, there's no inspiration to do anything. There's no sense of hope that anything will, will do anything. It's, it's kind of like a deadening, a, a kind of a loss. You're just, you're just lost. <laughs> just totally well, lost. Well, or, or I guess in just another way, I don't know if it sounds accurate or not, a lethargy of the soul. Yeah, and I think that even a lethargy of the soul is understating it. Yeah. Because it's so debilitating. It's so terribly debilitating. Yeah. At what point did you notice that you were really coming out of, because it sounds like this was sort of persistent for a number of years for you. I don't really know. You know, I went back and forth. I was happy, and also I was miserable. So... It might have had something to do with having a mother who was manic-depressive. Yeah. Although, for me, it wasn't nearly as, as extreme as her. You know, it's interesting. It's almost like, and, and this is just sort of a peculiar point of view, that you are doing almost a mirror neuron version of your mom, <laughs> not in exactly her place, but sort of in your own way that there was, you know, maybe unconscious as far as so maybe if I mimic this kind of thing I can just kind of try and stay on the same page as she is I don't think there was any intention or, or conscious thing I think that we all mimic everything around us to some degree yeah, yeah. I think what you're talking about is patterning the patterning yes. that we yes, that we learn subconsciously it's not so yeah. much mimicking and I don't think it's mirror neurons either. I think mirror neurons are a, are a different phenomenon, although I don't really know for yeah. sure. Well, and, and having just had Father's Day, did you, go, um, did you go spend some time with your dad on Sunday? No, I didn't. We, we are iconoclasts big time. We don't, we don't observe any of those social conventions. In fact, <laughs> in fact we, we tend to deliberately avoid them or flout them. <laughs> you know, we thumb our nose at them. We, like we don't but he's do nearby that. and doing okay. Yeah, he's, he's nearby and he's doing great. Fantastic. So the thought that I was thinking about 
you know, as far as you and I in this conversation today, I was kind of curious about, you know, and this is related to that discussion on depression, but how is your own curriculum of the soul going? And in relation to that, how is that, you know, your particular curriculum doing in relation to the curriculum of the world, the curriculum of the soul of the world, and the craziness that's happening out there? Well, I'm going through it all, and I'm processing all of it. I'm working on a couple of shows relating to different aspects of it, and I've been thinking a lot about the Black Lives Matter issue and the revolution that's going on, Mm -hmm. and hoping that it really breaks through completely. And, And actually, I was hoping to talk with you about some of the, you know, the demonstrations and some of the violence that occurred and what you thought of that. You know, what's the soul's perspective on violent protest? And, you know, when the the rage, when that feeling of enough is enough, I've had it, you know, it's time for rage and, and just letting all hell break loose because enough is enough. You know, it's yeah. beyond the rational. It's it's blowing the lid. It's it's blowing the gasket. It's blowing the fuse. Like, what's what's your perspective, you know, on that in terms of, like, the soul of humanity, the soul of, of a people who have been so incredibly abused and taken advantage of and put down and treated worse than animals, worse than anything, almost worse than anything imaginable. Well, you remember when the Rodney King riots took place? Every time that I've seen this happen, and and I don't know if this is so much of a soul point of view, but it makes perfect sense to me, because from the very perspective you're talking about, and I saw there was an interview with a New York Times reporter recently with Jon Stewart, and Jon's response, which I thought was really very interesting, he said, you know, this isn't really so much of a police problem, that this is really a societal problem, that we have sanctioned racism and segregation for hundreds of years. And the police are simply the sort of manifestation of that in terms of their use of power and abusing power, doing all that. So I completely understand that rage. Uh, and, you know, Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. That's not accurate because I'm a white person. Mm-hmm. But it makes perfect sense to me as a white person observing the kind of repression, the kind of awful treatment that African Americans, but also, you know, Latino people, and, you know, anybody of color has been treated in this culture, but also, I imagine, in other cultures as well. There's a certain point that that kind of awful treatment has to, you know, it turns into, you know, a, a kind of rage that is going to explode. So it makes sense to me. And, and I don't really have, you know, a particular judgment one way or the other as far as like, well, you know, this is good, this is bad, whatever. I think it's about time that enough people have gotten on the board where finally, finally, you know, there's people are going around and saying, you know, it's like de Blasio in New York City saying chokeholds are no longer a possibility. We're now going to make them illegal. That we're finally getting into certain kind of action, but I guess the question is from more that soul point of view that you're asking is, to what extent are all of us going to be doing that work inside to really look, 
to what extent that we, you know, we are carrying these prejudices, particularly as white people and all that entitlement that goes with being a white person, how are we going to level the playing field, which is just, to me, another version of what women were talking about with women's liberation in terms of relationships and in terms of job opportunities, things like that. How are we going to level the playing field? And so the thing that's really quite exciting to me from that sort of soul point of view at this moment in time, all the stones are getting overturned, the old stones, whether it had to do with racism, whether it had to do with you know, misogyny, all these things are really getting overturned. And this is what, it's such an exciting time to be alive in this perspective that nothing, nothing can be taken for granted anymore. Yeah. And I just, I absolutely adore it. I was thinking about this idea, Tonio, that, you know, from the soul perspective, identity is really a very perplexing thought. That it's really more the terrain of the ego. And as soon as we get too embroiled in identity, and obviously I think there are places, for instance, when, when gay people, lesbian, were really looking for a stand to just say, once again, we're just asking for a level playing field here. We just don't want to be discriminated because of how we practice our sexuality, for instance. So it seems to me that when it comes to this identity idea, when there is a certain fragility in one's identity, then you can end up with this kind of racism and this kind of prejudice. Versus if one is truly secure in their identity, that it's like, oh, I'm just talking to another human being. This is fine. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I've always had an issue with fairness to the extent that, I mean, you know, we're two white men, you know, the, the height of privilege in this, right. in this world. And yet I, growing up as poor as, as my family were when I was growing up and growing up in the Lower East Side of Manhattan in a very poor neighborhood where we were barely, barely getting by in one of the poorest neighborhoods amongst other people who were struggling and very poor. Um, and the way I was treated by my mother and and how I felt so... You know, I was a blonde, white kid in a largely immigrant neighborhood with larger, scary kids roaming in gangs. and And I just felt totally vulnerable. So I had a sense of of what that felt you know, being the outsider, being the minority. And so I've always had this issue with fairness. And when the, the George Floyd thing happened and and there were these riots, I was I was totally with them. I was just enraged. I was like, you know, blah, blah, blah. the police. Kill them all. You know, that's that's how I was feeling. So that might <laughs> That might, yeah. that might sound strange to you hearing that coming from me, but I was enraged. I was like, this is, this is enough of this white bullshit. Blah, blah, blah. This, these white police who have license to kill, and they have pretty much evolved out of the southern um, white supremacy. Keep the, uh, you know, the niggas in line, you know, the right. escaped slaves. I recently heard that a large part of the police grew out of the movement to to capture escaping slaves and return them to the South. 
So a lot of this law and order stuff has really evolved out of trying to keep black people down because there's so much resentment in the South that they had to give up their slaves, which for them was this precious commodity of labor. And a way of life. Exactly. Without that, their way of life completely changed. So they went from being these ultra-privileged people using other people so that they could live high on the hog, and then that was taken away, and, and they're feeling ripped off, and they're angry, and they're taking it out on not only, I mean, they're, mainly they're taking it out on black people, but they're also taking it out on, on the white people who are responsible for that. So yeah. there's a lot of hatred of the South toward, you know, the liberal North. Well, isn't that interesting, Tonio, that it's as if no one has done any kind of interior work as far as reevaluating any of those beliefs, that the very things that you're talking about. Exactly. And what I found was, you know, for about a week, I was like, just enraged. I was like, blah, blah, blah the police. You know, they're all rotten. We get rid of them. Of course, there's some good ones, but it's just collateral damage. we got to get rid of the whole lot. And uh-huh. I had a, an old friend from about 35 years ago from San Diego who found me online. And we were having some conversations. And after a few conversations, he sent me a link to some guy on YouTube. And he's living in Arizona. And... Arizona is very Republican and, oh, and yeah. quote-unquote conservative, and I think New Mexico is, is pretty liberal. Liberal, but also the thing that makes New Mexico particularly interesting is that we have a huge Native American population, you know, in many, many different tribes, and that's simply part of the landscape. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the, at least I was conscious when I moved here to Taos that, I'm, you know, I'm not even close to being an original inhabitant. You know that, you know, at, at Taos Pueblo, they have been here for 1,300 years. And this was before the Spaniards showed up, before anybody else showed up. So that there is almost, you know, and I, I hate to think of it like a hierarchy, but these were the first inhabitants. And there's been an inherent respect, I think, in New Mexico that this is not our land, in fact, that we're just here sort of sharing it, and, you know, I, and this goes back to that idea I was mentioning earlier of identity security. The Native Americans, at least the ones like the people in Taos that have had their lands all along, their sense of identity is rock solid for the most part. So they're really wonderful, humorous, great, incredible people, and I just feel like they've been gracious enough to let us hang out in the same neighborhood as their home. So that's where it's different. Arizona doesn't seem to have that kind of Native American population that sort of defined the terrain from the beginning. So this friend of mine, who I think just by virtue of living in Arizona, he's exposed to all these people and this culture, and it's influencing him, and it's kind of the water that he's swimming in. So he sent me this link, and he he asked me, what do I think of it? And and I started off my response. You know, you asked me for my response, so I'm giving it to you. And I yeah. I ripped 
the guy to shreds, and and I was I was deliberately nice about, it, but the guy that he presented was, you know, he called himself a conservative with Christian values. And he was talking about how there's no systemic racism, and you have to be colorblind, and things like that, and a number of other words. Other words, he's full of shit. Exactly, it was completely. <laughs> and that's what I said. I said this guy is completely full of shit. <laughs> and listening to him made me sick to my stomach. And it boiled down to he's another typical intellectual, quote unquote, Republican conservative. He's yeah. dead from the neck down. He has no uh-huh. emotional intelligence, no empathy, no heart-based intelligence at all. Yeah. It's all intellectual. And when you're on that intellectual level, it's like nothing means anything, really. There's no meaning. No, it's just a bunch of bullshit. Uh, so how did your friend respond to your response? He was surprised, but then he showed my response to his wife and that his wife resonated with what I said. And then he said, well, wow, I certainly have a lot to learn. (laughs) Wow, cool. He's been living in Arizona for many, many years, and the culture that he lives in is white, Republican, conservative, and racist, basically. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting, you know, as a musician, if I hang out with a bunch of blues players, guess what? I'm going to be playing the blues. I mean, if I hang out with a bunch of, say, jazz players, I'll end up playing jazz. These friends that you're talking to, or the friend that you have in Arizona, he's hanging out with a bunch of racists. So there's like there's a normalization because that's the only perspective he's getting. Exactly. Exactly. That that becomes and, his and mainstream. Isn't that, and isn't that America right now? Maybe in a more amplified version. Remember, we talked about in a previous conversation this idea of, you know, we're all living in our sort of separate islands. You know, there's your island there, there's my island out here. But it seems so accentuated now. It's like the island of racism that really is still trying so hard to survive in some version. And then when we have the George Floyd incident come along and people are going, no, 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 we have had too much of this and we are not going to take it anymore. Now we're finally, you know, who is that, the Peter Finch character in the film Network where he's like, you know, I'm not going to take this anymore. And people are screaming out their windows. And we've hit that point, which is so great. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That, that's how I feel. And, and I was so enraged. And I'd been enraged during this whole thing. And then after about a week of that, I cooled down, kind of in line with the mood of, of the country and around the world, where the violence petered out, and but the protests continued. And then I started thinking, well, you know... It probably is a minority of the police who are that bad. So probably killing them all is, is not the right approach. <laughs> uh, and also reflecting on, on my own, you know, I'm basically a pacifist, but when I get angry and I feel like things are unfair, I just, you know, there's this great song that I love from the 80s, from the, you know, the Iran-Contra time by Bruce Coburn. If I had a rocket launcher, do you know that song? Oh, yeah, song? yeah, I know exactly the tune. Oh, I, I love that song. That song has been a, an anthem for me at various points in my life. So I get in that, that kind of space where, I, you know, I just want a rocket launcher and, and just take out these motherfuckers. I hear you. But, you know, I just read something on the Times today, and it was saying that studies have shown 
doesn't matter if you're a police officer, white or of color, the same prejudices pervade. Absolutely. I just heard a talk by this woman. She's a professor and a scholar, and she's, she wrote a book titled Biased. And her argument about this, the way she puts it out, it's just so clear that we're all brought up in this culture of bias. And she gives an example of her own eight-year-old son displaying the exact same kind of bias that you know yeah. every other white person displays about black people. They were on a plane, and there was one other black person on the plane other than them. And her son said, hey, he looks like daddy. And she was like, wait a minute, he doesn't look anything like my husband. Why is my son falling into this trope of seeing all black people as looking alike? And then he said, I hope he doesn't steal anything or hurt anybody. Oh, my God. And she was like, oh, my God, where is this coming from? Yeah. And, and she, and thinking about it, she realized we, just by virtue of, of living in this culture, as you pointed out, it doesn't matter whether we're white, black, brown, whatever. Yeah. We all grow up with the same bias. The same bias. Yeah, and I, and I think that speaks to the point that we live in such an ego-centered world that is so focused on this idea of identity, you know, that we've spent so much of our lives trying to protect that identity rather than that soul-centered point of view, which is, well, you know, yes, I am an older white guy, and that's just reality. I don't walk out in public and wear it on my sleeve because I think of myself first and foremost as a human and that I have my own suffering and my own struggles as well as, and it could be literally anybody out there. I mean, when I, you know, when I see, like, friends, I was listening to, you know, interviews with friends of George Floyd, you know, my heart's just sinking George Floyd turned out to be part of the slow rap scene that was out of Houston, and they were playing some of his pieces. And I was so touched because I was like, it wasn't so much the music or anything like that, but it's like, oh, this is a compadre as a musician. And I'm like, we've lost a compadre. And, you know, from all accounts, basically was this decent human being who was just a regular guy, and everybody loved him. And even the good ones are being taken out. And at that point, I'm like, this is so over the top. It's no wonder people are protesting with violence because now we finally are like breaking out of perhaps the ego-centered world for a moment and going to turn this rock over and say, we want to get to the soul-centered world where we're all going to treat each other as human beings, as equally as is possible within the craziness of this thing of being alive. But there's so many obstacles, so many structures, societal structures yeah. we have to tear down in order to get there. Like one of the big ones is the police. You know, in this country, one of the principles of our justice system is equality under the law. Right. We have no such thing in so many different ways. But one of the most glaring things is that the police have never been held accountable for anything right. that they do. Immunity. They have actual institutionalized immunity. And that is, to me, is outrageous. So I totally understand that impulse to violence. You know, when you just go beyond rationality and 
reasonable behavior because what they're reacting to is the worst kind of behavior. So to me, it's totally appropriate to just blow up. And Richard Pryor said it beautifully, and I don't have the exact words, but he said, you know, if any of this kind of stuff had been happened to white people, they'd be out on the street with guns killing everybody. Yep. They wouldn't take this for a moment. Well, and that was what was interesting happening with all this was that it was white folk who were showing up in Minneapolis, some of the demonstrations with guns. And I can remember there's some small town somewhere in America. This guy goes, I'm not going to let my town burn. And I'm like, oh, you're not going to let your town burn, but it's okay for human beings to lose their lives over what possibly was just a false accusation concerning a counterfeit $20 bill. It's like, God damn, America, when are we going to get this together? Yeah, and finally, finally, much of white America is responding that this response is not so inappropriate as they've responded in the past, like getting the National Guard out and killing people. And, Tony, to what extent, because, you know, I wonder about this, and I've been thinking, you know, just as like this idea of our, you know, each one of our own particular curriculums that we've worked on in terms of our lives. To what extent are people really very solid in terms of, no, this is actually what I believe. And, you know, it's like with me, it's not necessarily about my book, but just whatever my own curriculum is. I keep holding it up to the world and seeing, does it, you know, does it take the test? each and every day, each and every situation, and where do I have to modify? I don't think that most people really have much of a solid curriculum at all. They're just kind of going with who knows, whatever's showing up on Facebook or on Twitter or the news is showing or whatever happens to be the thing rather than saying, no, this is exactly like here's, here's my whole thing and this does not hold up against it and I've felt this way for years or that I've had to change whatever it is that I was thinking and said, you know, thank you for bringing up that perspective because I hadn't considered that and it really helps me even give me a more solid foundation to stand on. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that is the perennial work that we all really need to do and that we have been brainwashed out of doing. And that is of continual self-inquiry and the understanding that life learning is a continual, ongoing, evolving process. And that no matter how enlightened we might think we are, no matter how learned or evolved we might think we are, We have only been in this world, in this universe, for the tiniest, tiniest blink of an eye, and we have absorbed so little understanding and wisdom that it's ridiculous. And to think that we know anything is is ridiculous, and we need to be open-minded, and we need to recognize that so that we can remain open-minded and continually doing self-inquiry. You know, that old line of question authority, yeah. You know, ask questions and question authority, and especially uh-huh. question our own authority. Question what we ourselves think and believe. That area of what we think and we, what we believe is a huge, huge blind spot for all of us. It's so hard to well, do that-, that. It takes tremendous remembrance to engage in that process of self-inquiry. And when we hear a perspective that we disagree with, even if it's wrong... 
I think we should look at it, you know, really look at it honestly and open-mindedly and evaluate it and evaluate our own assumptions and beliefs in relation to it. You know, we might be right, but to assume that from the beginning and disregard everything else like we normally do is a kind of educational death sentence. Oh, yeah. Well, and don't you think that, at least for me, I think I realized, I think you probably did a long time ago too, Tonya, was that the template that we were basically fed, i.e. public education, a lot of the sort of consensual reality, there's a certain point that some part of us basically is that questioning authority thing. You know, we basically said, no, this really can't be it. So you end up, for instance, like living in a spiritual community. I do whatever the things I'm doing in my life until we can finally come up with our own template. And the best thing that I can come up with now is, you know, some of like Robert Waterman's thoughts about the soul, even though some of it gets very esoteric. But I still use nature as really the ultimate template of like, so how would this work out in nature? Like, does nature, in fact, like when I think of George Floyd and all this kind of prejudice happening in the world, like, so does nature really have a particular prejudice? Well, actually, no, that there is all this diversity going on and things growing next to each other, and some things survive and some things don't. But it doesn't have to do with the color of your bark or anything like that. It just has to do with are there enough resources to be able to pull whatever off in order to grow. So I keep falling back to there and all these different things that obviously, like I put into the book. But I think you have your own template, too. And that was kind of where I was starting with this. Is like, here's your own curriculum, and you keep bouncing things off of that. Where does it, you know, does the curriculum need to modify? Or it's like, this doesn't even come close to making any sense, like seeing the George Floyd thing. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. A knee on someone's neck for eight minutes? Are you kidding? You wouldn't do that to your cat. You wouldn't do that to your dog. You wouldn't do that to anything else on the planet, and yet you think that's okay with a human being? Are you kidding? It's not even close. So I think you probably have your own template in there, too, to keep bouncing things off of to see. And you keep, obviously, you're such an avid reader, you're continually adding to that template so that it becomes probably more encompassing and more embracing as you get older. Well, I'm continually learning. You know, I had a father who was always reading and always encouraging me to read. And he was... He did a good job. <laughs> he, did, he did do a good job. So, yeah, I'm continually doing that just because I want to know everything. And there's no possible way I'll ever get even remotely close to achieving that. But while I'm here, I'm going to continually be working on that. Not, not because I, I want to know everything. I want to deeply understand and move toward what is most important and what's most meaningful. And I don't necessarily know how to get there, so I'm going to follow my own overall instincts, you know, combination of my gut, heart, and mind to engage with the world and everything I encounter in this so, uh, life. So, Antonio, here's, here's an interesting question for you. If you were to write a book that was, because you clearly have been checking a lot of things out, I'd say more so than most people, that, and you don't even have to have a specific answer about this, but, you know, like, what would that book even look like? What kind of title might it be that would, like, if you were to give this wisdom, say, if you had a child, 
um, how would how would that show up? Um, I don't know that a book is the way to do it. My father's example was just what he did, how he lived yeah. his life. You know, he didn't lecture me. He didn't he didn't do the father son talks kind of thing. I learned from him just by the by observing the way he he responded to life and he had a very difficult time for all the time that I was growing up with him and he was far from perfect but he persevered and uh, I persevere yeah so if this is you know like in that Rumi poem the guest house if this is what's showing up at the front door what is this virus beyond all the, the precautions and safety things that we need to be doing what is it really asking or even telling us to do in terms of our individual lives and our collective lives? Wake up call, baby. Wake up call. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. And yeah. And the main thing, I, I think, is that if we don't wake up, we don't pay attention and, and act responsibly and maturely with some wisdom, it's going to come back with ten times as much force and effect. So, well, it's doing its own version right now. When I look just today online, 24 states are going up. And I was looking at the map of the U.S., which was showing. Uh, I think both New Mexico and Vermont were, were actually both down like 5 or 10% or something like that. But all the states around me, with the exception of Colorado, their numbers, like California, they had their highest numbers, I think, yesterday in terms of new cases. Yeah, but... When I say coming back with much greater force, I'm talking about a virus that will actually be killing people because this one yeah, yeah. has the mortality rate of the flu. So uh -huh. this this is just a, a trial run. This is this is a wake up call, you know, a gentle slap in the face. This is a warning. So pay attention. Yeah. You think we'll? But pay where's your hope? In Do you terms think we'll of... pay attention? No. Are, are you kidding? <laughs> I, I, I'm with you on that page, Tonio, that, you know, I hate to sound cynical, because that's not my nature, really, but I don't put a whole lot of faith in human beings really getting together, because I really think that humanity in general is fairly lazy. I think the average wild critter out there in the woods has got a hundred times more agility and, and, and adaptability, you know, in relation to what humans do, because particularly in America, we are so in our comfort zones that we don't have a clue as far as what it's really hard, with the exception of fewer African-American. There was an interview recently of a father, a black man, who was, you know, like talking about the talk that they have to give their kids yep. as far as this is what's the reality of the world. If you go out in public and if you see a police car and if they pull you over and da-da-da-da-da, and I'm like, holy fuck. Yep. So there are people that have to be on their toes because their wake-up call has been ongoing. It's never stopped. For us white folk, we don't have a freaking clue in relation to that kind of being on our toes. Not a freaking clue. We are absolutely <laughs> clueless. We have no, no conception whatsoever. In my history, you know, being Jewish, my great-grandparents came over from Russia and Poland and back then, there were pogroms where, you know, the Cossacks came after Jews the same way 
you know, white Southerners come after or racists come after yeah. black people. But that's yeah. that's relatively ancient history now. I mean, it's it's a few generations back. So I have a little bit of that kind of fear in me. I'm aware uh-huh. of that. I actually have an embodied awareness of that and fear in my body around that kind yeah. of a thing. But compared to what black people go through, it is nothing. Well, there for them, it's day-to-day, moment-to-moment. Exactly. That kind of crazy insanity. It's actual day-to-day survival. Every time yeah. you go out for a drive, you are taking your life into your own hands. You may yeah. not come back alive. And for no fault of your own, you may not do a, anything wrong at all. Just by driving while black Yeah, puts in fact, a, if, puts Here's a the other side of it, Tonio, in sort of a humorous way. This gal who I'm seeing, she has a daughter, two daughters. They're both in her 30s. One in the late 30s has gotten, ever since the George Floyd thing, quite sort of politically active. And she's out in Los Angeles. And she was calling her mother one night and she's out after curfew, and she's, like, flaunting the whole thing. She goes, I'm a fucking white chick, and I'm out here after curfew, and I know they won't freaking touch me. Exactly. And she was really, like, making light of the whole thing in the sense that of, like, this is how fucked up it is, that if I was a black woman out there driving around, she said she would be fucked. Yep. So that's wild. But don't you think, on a certain level... You know, like, even though, for instance, you don't have, like, your ancestors' background of that kind of terror, of, you know, of being chased or whatever, that you still had your unique background of, like, growing up with your mother in particular and all the craziness that that entailed. And it seems to me that we all have these levels of suffering, and if we choose to tap into that, that really can make us very sensitive to the suffering around us and really becoming more curious as human beings. But I think a lot of people, it's like now, like when you were talking to that great gal, was her name Jody, um, yep. the gal who was talking about depression? Yep. You know, that we just medicate the shit away. Yep, exactly. Antidepressants. deal with it. Antidepressants, what they do is yeah. they, they numb us and they disconnect us from our soul because we connect to our soul through our feeling sense, yeah. through our heart. And antidepressants cut off our connection to our heart. So yeah. people end up living as zombies. Yeah. And we've certainly bought into it as a white culture. And, you know, this is just me. And, you know, it's like not that I'm any better of a white person or anything like that. But I've had an affinity between African dance, gospel music, jazz, blues, all this different stuff with black culture. And the thing that always occurred to me and this has been going on for a long time, is that because of the suffering they have endured, they have come up with the greatest art forms, among the greatest, that America has to offer the world. And for me, they are total heroes for having turned their suffering into art. To me, it doesn't get any better. But the gospel music of turning basically you know, the, the sacred music into and I think a lot of this had to do with during the time of slavery that they were they had created a lot of the spirituals at that time, which we would talk about in the gospel choir, spirituals where they would use 
heavy-duty metaphor so that the plantation owners wouldn't have a clue what they were singing about when, in fact, they were talking about being oppressed and how are they going to get free. Mm-hmm. It was pretty hip. How are they going to get free from the inside while they were yeah. chained on the outside? Yeah, which really is the pretty big theme for everybody but for them, it was so overt. I mean, yep. to me, exactly. and, and I didn't, you know, really, I could only imagine through reading, but it wasn't until I saw the film 12 Years a Slave, and I was like, holy uh. fuck, this is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my eyes were opened most profoundly when uh, I read Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee when I was in high school. Oh, wow. You read that book, right? No, I haven't. You have but I'm it. aware of it. Wow. To read it that graphically in such detail, so incredibly powerful. And I was already rebelling against, you know, U.S. culture, the whole yeah. U.S. government and the flag. And That's and what we notion. did back then. In fact, you know, we're learning. There's um, a Hendrix tune because the guitarist that I play with is very proficient. So, and he knows all this Hendrix stuff. And I was just looking at some old Hendrix footage, and he was talking about the Hendrix tune, I Don't Live Today, and he, he was dedicating that to all Native Americans. And that was the first time I had ever heard that thread, and I was like, this makes perfect sense. Yeah, that book was such, such an eye-opener. I mean, that opened up a whole nother realm of yeah. reality in white history. And when these conservatives, these quote-unquote conservatives, say, there's no systemic racism in this country, <laughs> we, have <to> be, <laughs> we, we have to be colorblind. You know, we should be colorblind. They are so yeah. completely out of touch with reality. Yeah. They're so out of touch with themselves. They're just living in but, their heads. But I agree with you, too, which is that rather than getting stuck, because you mentioned this earlier, this idea that you read to create more understanding. And, you know, there's that quote, and I don't know if it really quite applies here, but it, it's, a, it's a direction, which is to understand everything is to forget everything. And I, they attribute it to Buddha, but I can't believe that's really true because he never taught forgiveness. But for me to understand, like, say, understanding, say, the psychology of a previous partner, it helps me come to terms with myself. Mm-hmm. And this is not, for instance, to justify, you know, a white supremacist or something. But I do understand there's that part of the psyche that wants to hold on to the old beliefs because it takes a certain amount of work and ultimately humility to want to change beliefs. And that's something that's very hard for most human beings. Yep, it is. It's very hard. So I try to approach things, and even, you know, like trying to understand you know, the megalomaniac quality of our own president and try to understand, like, oh, okay, so instead of just, you know, he's, you know, hating him is like shooting fish in a barrel. That's no big deal. It's like, well, but if he is, in fact, a representation of physical manifestation of America's shadow, then there's something I can hold on to. It's like, so what work could I be doing out here in the world in terms of shifting helping to maybe in bring more light to that shadow. Yes, and we have to begin by doing it within ourselves. Absolutely. 
even Donald Trump is just a reflection of ourselves in the mirror. Yeah. As, yeah, yeah. as unpalatable as that might seem to some of us. Well, that's the Jungian idea that you know we all have a piece of Hitler inside each one of us. And how well, it's an aspect. We... It's an aspect of our humanity, yeah. whether we yeah. like it or not. It's yeah. not just Hitler or Trump. They are just the poster right. children of this darkness that we have not acknowledged. Yeah. And maybe isn't that the beauty of this time, which is a lot of this darkness, and this is totally Robert Waterman's kind of thinking, that as more people, whether they're practicing prayer, ho'oponopono, whatever they're doing, that it's actually bringing more of this darkness up to the surface. Like the, the George Floyd thing was, to me, in a sense, a very wonderful event in that all that darkness is not only coming back up, but it's not going back down. And that, that's what I'm hoping is it's going to stay lit up. And it's like, we're going to make change and we're going to vote for the people that are going to go ahead and support that kind of change. You think that's going to actually happen this time? Again, I don't know. Uh, it'll be curious, for instance, this fall, because I think a lot of people are just saying, screw it. This is how humans are and it's not going to change at all. But whether we like it, you know, I think there was a certain amount of, I don't know, almost complacency in the last election, where it's like, no, it's not going to change, and we end up with a monster in office. And now, I think people, if nothing else, even if it's Wonder Bread that's showing up, that is going to be way less stressful than having to come up with, you know, the new headline, you know, like yesterday's, that Trump is revoking all green cards as of the end of this year. And I'm like, holy fuck, you do not have any fucking boundaries whatsoever. Even when the law of the land, the Supreme Court says this is an okay program, that he's still going to do whatever he can. And I'm like, holy shit, no boundaries. I've never seen a human being before in my life. This is like the worst addict you can imagine. No boundaries whatsoever in which he can say enough. That's incredible to me. And half the country will back him up on that, too. Well, and I think, aren't there those parts of our own psyche, though, Tonio, that, you know, there's that old part of me that wants to, you know, like, if I just go into this nice mode of codependency, like with this new relationship, then how long can I get away with it? And how long can I dominate the other person and blah, 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 that kind of thing? Where the other part of me is like, no, Rick, you tried that for how many years and you, it doesn't work. So now you've got to do the new thing, and with a partner who's totally receptive to that, it's going to take some work, but it's, so far it's working out pretty good. And then there's the other thing, that being very comfortable in our white existence here, even having a president like Trump and even four more years of Trump isn't really going to affect us directly. That's true. I mean, yeah, it's it's a bizarre kind of thing. We'll get outraged and upset about the things he's doing and, and the effects he's having on the world, but it doesn't really change our direct experience much. But al although there may be a slight little discernment in there that, for instance, all these horrible policies related to the EPA and... Right, but that's, uh, that's like, it's a little further down the road. But I think we're starting to see, like, these weather events are getting closer and closer and closer. I mean, they're already talking a record hurricane season this year. Instead of the 8 to 12, it's going to be like 12 to 18. Yeah, but until we see it, 
Until we see it, it doesn't mean anything. That's true. But I think more and more people are starting to wake up to that. Like, it was a year or so ago, I remember there was a woman in Arkansas when it was all flooding, like the Missouri River, and she said, I didn't believe anything about this climate change until she saw her whole property was flooded. Well, again, it's most of us are still untouched by any of that. We're untouched by, by the flooding, by the unprecedented wildfires in California and Australia. Most people are, are not touched by it, so it doesn't change reality. We see well, it in the media, but, but it's still, it's, it's like fiction. It's not real to most of us. But there is that, you know, that interesting formula, and I don't know to what extent you put credence in it, Tonio, that says all it takes is you know, like 10% of you know, a certain population to be convinced of a new thing, mm-hmm. and the rest of the population will end up going that direction. And it seems to me that more and more people are having that firsthand kind of experience, like you mentioned, the wildfires in Australia. Yeah, we're getting that, there, but, that, but I think 10%, I think we're still, I don't know. I don't know where we are toward getting yeah, to where that we are in, 10%. In that. And I don't even know if, if that 10% will hold true. I mean, that's, that's a theory, I think. I mean, I, I tend to, to lean towards the truth of that, but I don't really know. I honestly don't know. And considering what we're up against, what our future holds for us, and what our present holds for many people on this planet, um, it's easy to go into despair about all of this. Well, and maybe, I mean, and this is a completely different perspective, which is that maybe the human experiment has run its course. Well, yeah, when you look at climate change, that may well be the case, whether it takes 10, 20 years or 100 or 200 years. Right. In any case, life is changing. And if we don't wake up quickly, it's going to change in profound ways that are, are not going to be comfortable. But I would say, Tonio, like the interview you did with the woman, Jody, as far as depression, there would be a great example of where you have not fallen into despair, that you, in fact, are really... And I think this is how the new paradigm, any new paradigm shows up. It always shows up from the fringe, never from the center. Of course. And you keep doing that, which to me is so helpful. And to hear, like, that was just such a nice, clear, succinct conversation. I just adored it because it had just great pragmatic thinking going on from both of you. And that's what we need more of rather than people... Although, here's an interesting thing. Terry Gross, only a a day or two ago, was interviewing yet another doctor psychiatrist, and she was talking about the use of psychedelics for therapy and how it's still considered totally outside the norm, but they're having incredible successes. And I thought, how interesting, because this was just another corollary conversation to what you did with Jody about depression. Yep. So it, it keeps kind of showing up, and I... To me, there's a certain amount of hope when I hear you have a conversation like that, not that you're necessarily hopeful, but (laughs) you're bringing in the new that is really, there's so much lovely old wisdom in there. It's like, well, damn, why don't we just go back to the stuff that makes sense? Well, some of us do. It's just that the mainstream are stuck in, in the dark ages. Oh, yeah. And that's a reference to the old, but a an unenviable old, an undesirable old. 
Yeah. You know, actually, you know, Robert Waterman talks about, but this shows up in Islam, and we've talked, I've mentioned this before in our past conversations. You know, he says that all we have to do is show up with 10%, and the divine will provide the other 90. Islam says you take one step towards Allah, and Allah will take 10 steps towards you. And so there seems to be some kind of interesting spiritual wisdom, and of course we don't have any gauges scientifically for that. One of my issues with the response to the pandemic is that they're treating us like children. They're treating us like children who are not capable of understanding reality. And so it's another example of how we're being dumbed down. We're not being told how things really work. We're just told that we have to wear face masks 24-7 and we have to maintain social distancing as a blanket statement. They're not educating people to understand how the virus works, how it infects us, you know, the dynamics of it, so that we can use our own innate intelligence and common sense to approach things. I mean, it seems to me they're continually just still discovering all these aspects. We're still literally in the very beginning of like a thousand-mile walk. In some ways, yes, but coronaviruses have been around for for a long time. Yeah, it's not yeah. that new. Uh-huh. Most of the things they were saying about it have been proven to be wrong. Right. And yet their approach to it has not changed at all. Except well, that they, and, are, and that's, that's... they are opening things up, and in many cases they're opening things up too quickly while at the same time still being overly cautious in other ways. So it's not a really rational approach to this. There's not common sense being... Well, it's not effective, that's for sure. It's not effective. And as long as we're treating people like children who aren't capable of understanding things, we're not going to get a handle on how to deal with all of this stuff. But don't you think there's a part of the population that really needs to be treated like children? Actually, I don't subscribe to that. I think, okay. I think every, if everybody is treated respectfully and given the opportunity to think for themselves and told the truth, you know, soberly and honestly, I think people will come around to using their own intelligence instead of listening to their choir pundits or their preacher, choir preachers, whether it's religious or political or ideological or whatever, it's when they know, they feel in their guts that their government and their media is treating them like children and not being honest or not being respectful in in that way, that they reject them and they go to these nutcases, these wackos who are just spewing utter nonsense or, or destructive crap. So that's why I think that we really should honor everybody's innate intelligence, regardless of how well they've been using it in the past. You know, there was some article, I don't think it got a whole lot of press, but there was an article talking about the places where women were in charge, like Jacinda Arden down there in New Zealand, where she dealt with it compassionately. She did shut her borders, and she kept businesses open, And at the same time, she really said, but these are the precautions. And don't you remember, I think we talked about this, how she ended up 
she declared that the Tooth Fairy was an essential worker. I mean, she had a sense of humor in there, too. And the country has been one of the great success stories on the planet in terms of minimizing impacts and, and really minimizing the number of deaths. So there, and everybody got on board because she said, we're going to do this together. And obviously she got a real good consensual thing. We have been utterly fractured in this country. We have a president that won't even wear a face mask, for instance. So can you imagine the average person out there is getting so many different messages from so many different people, and there's not been, like, one voice that has said that's like, oh, yes, like the very thing you're saying, this makes sense, so let's all do this because we're really doing this for the, the good of the country and then, in essence, the good of the world. It's been all fractured, and that just shows where we are media-wise here in, in the country, as well as all the, these different opinions. Everybody is like those guys I was telling you about are going into the post office without wearing face masks, regardless of that seems to be overwhelming evidence that this helps in the minimization of the spread of the virus. So I, I haven't been felt so much like a child. I just felt like it's been confusing because we haven't had any one voice. Because to me, it was absurd from the very beginning, the idea of people, i.e. Mike Pence and Donald Trump, who simply don't believe in science to begin with, the idea that they would be basically heading, you know, leading a country about something that we really have to have real science behind in order to deal with it. It was absurd from the beginning. Yeah, but they reflect the uh, beliefs and attitudes of a large portion of the people yeah. in this country. Who don't believe in science. And so maybe, and I don't know if this is perhaps how that impression came about for you, that there are those people that clearly are related to science, you know, and most of the, you know, the, the people in the scientific field were appalled at how poorly we were responding as a nation to this. You know, when Donald Trump said, oh, just, we're going to just wake up one day and it'll be gone, that kind of stuff. Well, there's like, also a problem, oh. there's a problem with institutionalized science that it's stuck in its own rut, and it's, yeah, yeah. it's really hard to trust the institution of science or the institutionalization message or perspective of quote-unquote science. Yeah, yeah. But Like, if a vaccine just, showed up, would you be in line to be taking that vaccine? I'd be in line running the other way, as fast as I can. And that's exactly how, for instance, my doctor of oriental medicine, and it's really given me great pause thinking about that because he knows all the other shit that they put in, in vaccines, and he's like, no, he says he would rather commit suicide than take that vaccine. And he's kind of serious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know just what you're saying about institutionalized science, because it's like, well, look how you know, the success rate of vaccines in general is not that great. Yeah, again, it reflects on what I was calling you know, treating people like children. It may not be the best metaphor, but... And I know what you mean. I know just what you mean. So if we're living in this time of complete chaos, and I think that's part of the anxiety that's happening right now, because it really it's like chaos in terms of all the messages, and that at best it's like, well, just keep distance and wear face masks. That's the sort of childlike thing you're talking about. So how does one first deal with this pure chaos of, like, how do we then live our lives? And is there going to be, I don't want to say the word hope necessarily, but what kind of shining light can possibly come through the chaos that is going to maybe for a moment bring some order again because even that will create its own problem too 
Well, I think what we're looking for exists inside of each one of us. Yeah. As long as we're looking outside for answers to this quote-unquote chaos, and I don't think that we're living in a time of complete chaos. We're living in a time of reckoning. It's not yeah. chaos at all. I think this is order coming out of chaos, but it's, uh-huh. it's an order that is disruptive and uncomfortable, and so many people are, are using the epithet of chaos onto it, and yet what it's doing is it's, it's creating a kind of a resolve in the world, which is the opposite of chaos. It's actually creating, a, we're moving in a direction of an orderly response to things. It's just appearing on the surface to be like chaos, but on the inside, which is really the essence of Jody's work and her approach to depression, is to get people who are depressed in touch with what's inside of each one of them. Yeah. To find their own inner anchor, their own mm-hmm. rock. Yeah. Because as long as we're looking outside of ourselves and missing our own inner rock, we're going to be untethered and we're going to yeah. be dependent. Yeah, and I think the reason why I use that word chaos is like when I think of how many different media voices are out there right now that, again, that's that external thing, the looking outside. Okay, and I information chaos, yeah, I, that idea. Yeah, and so there's that chaos, and I quite agree with you, because I think there was that one point. Do you remember when um, they, they had showed a few years ago the documentary on the, the William Buckley, and who was the writer? There were those debates in the late 60s. Anyhow, they were talking about the moon launch, you know, the, from over 50 years ago when we landed on the moon, and the media head was basically saying... This was the last time, as a nation, we were looking at the same images, mm-hmm. which was very interesting to me, because now we don't look at the same images. And I quite agree with you that if we do the, it's like, obviously, the book that I wrote, which was like, well, you know, don't go crazy about this, but there's a little bit of work, it's interior work, and if we keep in touch with that solid ground, then the exterior stuff is going to sort itself out pretty easily. Exactly. But if you keep getting distracted with all the exterior stuff, you're basically screwed. Right. You'll be lost. Yeah. You'll be lost. I mean, when the New the Yorker chaos. came up with an article about a month or so ago, Tonio, about it was one of their good writers, and she was writing about, you know, this struggle with loneliness because of quarantine. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, where are you bringing solitude into the conversation? Because solitude is totally part of what the soul craves is not the only thing it loves connection all that too but if you're just going to talk about loneliness because your little ego doesn't have you know its usual kind of you know entertainment reinforcement you're still being superficial right if our attention is going outward and we're listening to all the noise and the sounds and the stimuli outside then the soul craves silence and solitude to help compensate for for being lost out there, because it's not out there. We can enjoy everything out there, but if we're completely lost out there and we completely forget what's inside, then we become vulnerable to things like depression and despair and suicide and chaos. And pharmaceuticals. And all those things that reinforce our sense of separation and disconnection. 
Yeah. So in relation, I've only made it through your half of the last interview with the with the woman who does the energy work, energy medicine, and maybe this will show up in the second half of the interview. But the question I was wondering as I was listening was, because you said there were a bunch of interesting things that were really happening for you as you were going through certain exercises and checking out things inside. What were those things that were happening for you in the course of reading that book? Well, basically, it boiled down to looking inside, listening, yeah. listening to my own body. Like, for me, for both of us who are, you know, very experienced in meditation, it's very easy to sit quietly, to go inside. But that's still different than listening to our bodies on the inside. Mm-hmm. We tend to not actually listen to our body. We tend to put our attention in the space and we allow thoughts and feelings and things that come up to just drift by or to observe ourselves getting caught up in them for the moment and then remembering to let them go. But to go inside and actually listen to our body, that's a tricky thing for those of us who are adults because we have been trained out of listening to ourselves. Obviously, it's very natural for a child, especially a very young child, but we forget that language. We are trained out of understanding that language or feeling connected to that language. And for me, what it was was the magic, the wonder of looking in that direction, actually listening to my body. And it takes work. It takes practice. It takes it takes listening at a subtle level to these things. And it, it takes time to really reestablish that connection because we're talking on the level of energy, of subtle energy, because that's what the body is actually made of besides yeah, yeah. the physical stuff. The physical stuff is just the the product of the energy and the thoughts and the beliefs and right. and the spectrum of vibration that the world is. You know, light, sound, all that stuff. Matter is the solidification. Right. right. It's, it's the final manifestation it's the of final, all the other... Exactly. It's the final, yeah. the grossest level of manifestation. And we think of that as the height of reality, but actually the spiritual traditions, the wisdom traditions, see that as actually the lowest level. Yeah. The, the complete opposite of the assumption that we in the West have made, which is interesting, isn't it? Well, it's like Chinese medicine that thinks of surgery as akin to butchery. That that's the last place you would ever go in Chinese medicine, that you'll go after it energetically first mm-hmm. to see what might change. Right. Surgery is the last resort. Before you consider all the stuff that we think of first from a Western point of view. Right. Whereas in our culture, it's like, surgery, do it now. Yeah. You got a knee problem? We'll just go ahead and just correct it. That sort of thing. Right. It's always fixing, fixing, fixing. Is and also, if even if we we're not sure of what's in there, just cut it open and see what's going on, and just be ready yeah. to do whatever you need to do after you've cut it open. We're such an interesting machine, don't you think, Tonio? Yeah. But, you know, we learned this process 
this is in the process of becoming a noetic balancer because we're dealing in the energy field and doing you know our version because actually that's in the energy healing books that have been out there for a while one of many many modalities are out there but we learned just this process of scanning our own bodies because i know when i meditate i'm really more for silence and you know quiet yeah. in the course of meditation right. but scanning is a completely different activity which you're still doing in the silence but you're really kind of scanning the whole thing and scanning the field as far as so where might there be disturbances where might things be going on and if you discover anything then what exactly do you do with it well even before asking what do you do with it what is the disturbance what are, what are the yeah, yeah. subtle qualities of the disturbance and that's the scanning part which is like so what's showing up on the radar here I mean, it's just such a cool process, and as you well know, the body, of course, is giving us hints all the time. It's not just hints. It's talking to us all the oh, time. Yeah. It, it only seems yeah. like hints because we're so dense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true. But the information's always there, and that's why I love, like, my doctor of oriental medicine. He's only telling me. He never diagnoses, but he just says, well, this is what your body says is going on and he just works accordingly. Mm-hmm. So I, I could even mention, like, say, oh, something with the right shoulder, and he'll end up never even working on the right shoulder at all. He'll work on, you know, like doing acupuncture on other parts of the body, acupressure elsewhere, things like that. And he says, well, you never would know it, but this is all the stuff that was making what was ever happening going on in your, in your shoulder. Exactly. Because everything is connected like that, yeah. that old song, the hip bone is connected to your thigh yeah. bone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know how consciousness on the planet is really, like, where would that big shift ever happen? And I think this is maybe part of the George Floyd thing, back to there, which is this is getting us to look inside, particularly well, actually, as white folk. For that getting issue, us to look yes. inside, and maybe yeah. though that's one of the doorways for us to say, oh, we could really be applying this kind of thinking to everything. Well, yeah, we have to. And to ourselves. Yeah. yeah. But again, I think one of the reasons why we don't do that is because we are being treated like children by the media and by our governments and by our education system. And we're being taught the most simplistic approaches to things. We're being treated as if we don't have the capability to understand things, truly. Well, maybe I would just characterize it a little differently. I think those very structures you're talking about, they do the very thing that, that you're mentioning, but the reason is that that's how they sustain power. And then when you go back to what you mentioned earlier as far as questioning authority, then you get to step right out of that paradigm and say like, oh, so now I really am in the terrain of 100% responsibility. And at that point... You can't be even consider the thought of being treated like a child because you're not giving up your power to let that happen. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I'm glad you brought up the issue of power because I think you're you're spot on about that. And we and have I, to and take I think responsibility. That's how you see it as that manifestation is like yeah. feeling treated like a child because I think it's quite true. That's what they're doing. Let's basically dumb it all down so that we can make it palatable to you, but we're really, ultimately, what this is about is manipulation. And even children do not like being treated as children. No. No, not at all. Because they realize at a certain point that manipulation has nothing to do with play or spontaneity. Or respectful relationship. Yeah. 
So this is the big question. You know, we've talked about this, but you talk about this in many of your conversations with your authors and other people that to what extent are we actually as a culture, and this concludes the world culture, willing to take back our power instead of giving it away like we always do to whoever or whatever out there, like I'm going to give my power to a pharmaceutical or something like that, to pull this all back and it's like, oh, so I think Marianne Williamson of all people mentioned this somewhere in one of her previous books. She says, the question really, it doesn't have to do with, you know, these other things. The question is, we're not really willing to take on the full responsibility of how powerful each one of us actually are. That's what it boils down to, taking 100% responsibility for everything in our own experience. Yeah, yeah. Which includes everything around us. Because that's within the field of our perception. Uh And we're always responding to everything that we're perceiving. You know, to some degree, we're always responding to it, whether it's overtly or internally, you know, in an active way or by omission. Yeah. We did a Zoom book club thing with Robert Waterman's book, and the chapter we're working on was Ho'oponopono. And I said, so, you know, from this perspective... It just makes more sense to say, I'm sorry, forgive me, Donald Trump, thank you, I love you, so I can get rid of that kind of negative bullshit that might be happening inside of me. And it's not that I'm looking for a result necessarily in changing his behavior, but if enough people disengage, i.e. disengage from giving their power to Donald Trump, then he loses his power. Well, when we acknowledge it within ourselves, it disappears because it's no longer an issue of being out there. We right. recognize that it's actually in here. It actually it arose from in here, and therefore, whatever we're perceiving out there is no longer relevant because the whole purpose of it appearing out there is to reflect what's inside of us. Yeah, that's exactly Dr. Hugh Lenz's point of view, which was, for him, his whole point of existence says all we're doing is cleaning you know all the time and Mm -hmm. we just keep cleaning the very thing you talked about and then who knows how the world you know he says we're not looking for a result but we're just basically being grateful for the idea of like oh donald trump is here to remind me i got to clean this up inside myself and i just keep doing that and it's like oh and it just feels better and that's just another way of doing continual self-inquiry. Self-inquiry is just bringing awareness to things on a continual basis, bringing continual awareness to the current state of our inner, our whole current state, which is continually being added to by each new experience that we have. So we need to evaluate. So Hugh Len would say we need to clean, and my approach is doing self-inquiry which is bringing awareness because awareness by itself has a kind of cleaning effect or potentially cleaning effect. So it's kind of the same dynamic going on. Oh, totally. So do you have a poem handy for, oh, yeah. for, for our I got, time? I have all kinds of poems. Let me see. Actually, there's two. First, there's Joy Harjo's poem. This is not too long. And she's our current poet laureate of the United States. And the name of the poem is Once the World Was Perfect. Once the world was perfect and we were happy in that world, then we took it for granted. 
Discontent began a small rumble in the earthly mind. Then doubt pushed through with its spiked head. And once doubt ruptured the web, all manner of demon thoughts jumped through. We destroyed the world we had been given for inspiration, for life. Each stone of jealousy, each stone of fear, greed, envy, and hatred put out the light. No one was without a stone in his or her hand. There we were, right back where we had started. We were bumping into each other in the dark, and now we had no place to live since we didn't know how to live with each other. Then one of the stumbling ones took pity on another and shared a blanket. The spark of kindness made a light. The light made an opening in the darkness. Everyone worked together to make a ladder. The Wind Clan person climbed out first into the next world. And then the other clans, the children of those clans, their children, and their children, all the way through time to now, into this morning light to you. So maybe that's where we are right now. Yeah. That it is evolving. And here's this Tony Hoagland poem that he wrote just prior to his passing, which was a couple of years ago. And uh, the name of this poem is called Peaceful Transition, which is about basically the end of us as a species. <laughs> so see what you think. The wind comes down from the northwest, cold in September, and flips over the neighbor's trash receptacles. The Halifax newspaper says that mansions are falling into the sea. Storms are rising in the dark Pacific. Pollution has infiltrated the food chain down to the jellyfish level. The book I am reading is called, quote, The End of the Ascent of Man, end quote. It says the time of human domination is done, but I'm hoping it will be a peaceful transition. It is one thing to think of Buffalo on Divisadero Street, of the Golden Gate Bridge overgrown in a tangle of vine. It is another to open the door to your own house, to the waves. I am hoping the humans will be calm in their diminishing, that the forests grow back with patience, not rage. I am hoping that flocks of geese increase their number only gradually. Let it be like an amnesia that we don't even notice, the hills forgetting the name for our kind, then the sky. Let the fish rearrange their green governments as the rain splatters slant on their roof. It is important that we expire. It is the kind of work we have begun in order to complete. Today, out of the north, the cold wind comes down, and I go out to see the neighbor's trash bins have toppled in the drive. I see the unpicked grapes have turned to small, sweet raisins on their vine. I see the wren has found a way to make its little nest inside the cactus thorns. That was quite a poem for somebody who is on his way out to begin with, and then just putting it in the larger context of maybe this is what, in fact, we're doing here on the planet. Yeah, that was fabulous. I think that's Isn't so that appropriate. Great? Yeah. Yeah. But also, you know, I think Joy Harjo always hits on that idea of, in a similar, how we keep screwing it up and that there are those few that figure out a way to get to the next place. And that may be, for instance, your conversations with some of these lovely people that is offering a window and a door to the next place. And who knows, maybe a few people might follow those tracks and say, this is in fact where we need to go. Yep, and we'll find out. 
(laughs) (laughs) Brother, it's always great talking to you. You too. Until next time, enjoy the heck out of your life. (laughs) (laughs) You do the same. Be well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Rick Halterman. He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.